0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and this is what I've got for you this hour. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to join me in just a minute. And I'm looking forward to chatting with my friend Alex, and then Dr. Greg Borgon is going to talk about why God disciplines the ones he loves. Isn't that wonderful that he loves us and is willing to discipline us? Usually we don't like that word discipline, but it is always good when God's doing it. So Dr. Alex McFarland is a speaker and an author and an amazing um, evangelist. He has uh, spoken all over the world. Always glad to have him on. Alex, welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. How is your day going, it's brother? Going,
0: it's going really quite well, thank you. you know, Can the, you believe it's November? I, I know. I know. It's, uh, it's getting to be that time of the year where, especially if you live in Minnesota, you're realizing that the five months of cold has officially begun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> has it, Have you had snow yet? Yep. We've had a little dusting of snow yesterday. And enough wow. ground cover that we look out and go, oh, I guess it's kind of winter now. So anyway, not complaining. Uh, always yeah. glad that uh, each day is one that we can make a difference for the kingdom. That's what we get to do every day here at Faith Radio. So, Amen. Yeah. You know, Alex, the Bible talks a lot about peace. And right now there's such an absence of peace in the world. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. That's in Isaiah 9, 6. Paul refers to the God of all peace in mm-hmm. Romans fifteen thirteen. And peace is used as a greeting um, and a benediction. I see that in Luke 24. So what what exactly is peace, and how
1: can we have inner peace? Big question. Wow, great question. Yeah. Great question. And, you know, isn't it something that one of the titles for uh, Jesus is Prince of Peace? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. you know, peace is, is the absence of, of danger and trouble and conflict, um, but inner peace. One of the beautiful things about salvation is, as you well know, there's peace with God. There's peace with others. There's peace with our circumstances. There can be peace about our past. But one of the beautiful things is there's peace with ourselves, and I feel like a lot of the, the turmoil and the lack of peace that people may experience is the inability to reconcile with themselves. And Jesus, though, enables us to experience that peace. Uh, he says, peace I give, not as the world gives, but the, the ultimate peace. There's a message that I teach, Bill, ultimate peace, ultimate joy, and and not to be cliché or or trite or anything but you know in John 14:27 where Jesus talks about this indescribable truly pervasive peace with God and ourselves it it really is a gift that he can give any person in the world and i love John 14:27 because Jesus
0: says it is my own peace that i give you this is not peace that comes off the shelf at the store this is his private peace coming from him to us so when we talk about having inner peace i know a lot of people have got uh, problems today with their personal lives their relationships their finances their health and that all creates a lack of peace but god says i will give you peace that the world can't
1: give yeah yeah. And, and you know, it's so sad, you know, Bill, as, as we record this or broadcast this, uh, the entertainment world is um, mourning the loss of Matthew Perry. He was a very famous actor on that popular show Friends, and he, a funny guy, incredibly talented guy. But it was well known that for years he had battled alcoholism and substance abuse. And, you know, I, I don't know where all that wound up. I really don't, but I mean clearly it took a toll on his health. And I remember a couple of years ago that he was supposed to be a part of some television show that um uh he he couldn't really do it because he, he just couldn't be sober enough to do it. So it compromised his career. But he said several months ago, he said alcohol lied to me. And, uh, and I, I'm I'm assuming what he meant by that was it promised peace, or, you know, mm-hmm. I can numb myself enough to get through another day or whatever. And he said before he died, alcohol lied to me. Mm-hmm. Here's my point. Um, when In John 14, where, when the Lord said, I give you peace, not as the world gives. And then he went on, he said, let, let not your heart be troubled. Um, Jesus Christ can give us, no matter what you've been through, um he can forgive whatever we've done but he can heal whatever we've been through and Jesus truly can this is not just religious cliche or something but a peace and a a resolution and even a joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that that you're just not going to find anywhere else no no bottle no mm-hmm. pill Nothing in this world can give you the the peace that Jesus Christ gives, and it's a free gift. Isn't that beautiful?
0: It is. I heard Matthew Perry uh, say that he had a successful career, and he said, I finally got to the point where I could go buy that house that had the pool and everything about it. And he said, after six months, I'd walk in the house and I'd go, is this it? This this isn't making me happy. And I I did hear that he uh, made a profession of faith uh, in Christ before he died so that's praise God yeah because he I think had gone through 60 treatments for drug addiction I think he had an, wow. uh, an opioid addiction as well as alcohol bless alcohol. his heart yeah so he was uh, a guy that was had plenty of demons for sure when it comes to addiction so yeah mm-hmm. this is the kind of peace that only God can give and if you're sitting today thinking my life is turned upside down and I don't have peace and it feels very legitimate because of what's going on in your life I wanna just pray that God will meet you in your time of need and that he will give you the peace that he promises from John fourteen
1: twenty seven. Yeah. I'm really gonna show my age here, but um you mentioned that he said, you know, is this all there is? There was a singer many, many years ago named Peggy Lee. Sure. And she she was kind of a big band jazz singer. Um and she had a song. I was just a little kid, and it would be years before I understood what this meant. But she had a song in the late 60s called, Is This All There Is? And it it kind of goes through, and it's like, you know, I wanted to find love, and I did. And then I thought, is this all there is? And I wanted to succeed and have money, and I did. And I thought, is this all there is? And see, that's... Um, let me just say this, Osgoodness. You've you've probably interviewed Os I have Guinness, haven't times. you? Several times. Yes. Brilliant guy. I was with him in Washington for an event back in September. Just, I mean, he's a living treasure of Christianity and wisdom. He's kind of almost like a C.S. Lewis sort of figure. But he wrote um, a book back in the '80s called The Dust of Death, and there's a chapter called the striptease of humanism. And what Os Guinness meant by this just like, you know, um some illicit performance is really a tease and a lie. Humanism that says, look, the the pathway to happiness indulge yourself. You know, do whatever you want, get whatever you want, eat, drink and be merry, grab all the gusto cuz we're going to die. And then you're empty. And like the Peggy Lee song, is this all there is? Um how sad. Uh, And by the way, this is the irony, Bill, that the more we try to um, aggrandize ourselves, or, you know, hold back nothing, indulge ourselves, oddly enough, the emptier we become. Some of the most unhappy people that I've ever counseled have been the people that have been the most narcissistic, the most self-indulgent. And on the flip side, some of the most fulfilled, joyful people that that I know are the people that have given their life to the Lord and to serving others. And, And I realize it takes a step of faith, but the pathway to joy is to not try to make yourself happy, but to love the Lord God and then to serve others and to let God write the story of your life. That's where fulfillment and happiness really is.
0: Mm -hmm. I saw a video, a short video that Tim Tebow put out, and he was talking about growing up through college and even into his pro career where there would be a significant disappointment, where something would happen that would be very hard news, difficult, challenging. And he would say, the first thing I would do is turn around and go out and serve somebody before I even processed it or thought about it even more, because Amen. it completely changes your perspective when you get outside yourself and go serve somebody as soon as you can do it.
1: Yeah. And that that's why, I, I mean, the time you most should go to church and get under the sound of God's Word is when you really don't feel like it. the The time that you should be intentional and proactive about loving people and forgiving people and serving people, doing the right thing when you may not necessarily feel like it. Because if, if you let emotions drive whether you do right or wrong, most of the time you're not going to really want to gravitate towards what is right. And, and we need, especially within the church, we need to be driven by conviction and the word of god rather than by feelings Um, feelings are not a trustworthy dependable test for Mm -hmm. truth but the litmus test of god's word and our conscience let the holy spirit speaking to us um and bill i think we know very often look we know when the holy spirit is calling out to us uh i I think so Mm -hmm. It's, it's not does god speak he does. The question is, are we going to obey when God speaks?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Alex, we talk about not trusting
0: emotions. Yet Jesus was full of emotions. It's all over Scripture where we see Him uh, having emotions. How do we how do we balance all that out?
1: Well, yeah, we are emotional creatures, and the Lord shows emotions. I mean, there's great joy. Uh, he He would praise the Lord. Uh, Jesus showed. Anger uh you know um at unrighteousness mm-hmm. he didn't show unrighteous anger, but yeah. he did get angry at sin, but um I think the 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 caution here there is um, like in proverbs fourteen twelve it says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death death um Jeremiah seventeen says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Our emotions are not a litmus test for righteousness and truth, because feelings vacillate, and our even the most you know intelligent people can do very unwise things. But that litmus test, that you know compass that never fails, is the the word of God.
0: Mm-hmm. When Isaiah chapter one says, "Let us reason together," when you are led by the spirit of god to a place of salvation where you are going to repent of your sin and and trust in the lord jesus to me that is one of the most rational moments a person is ever going to have in their life
1: amen well said and and, and that's that's the irony that a lot you know in the last decade and you and I have talked about this on many times uh many occasions but there have been a lot of atheists Uh, in the news, like Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or, you know, Daniel Dennett or Bart Ehrman. And a lot of the, you know, pop atheists feel like, uh, and they've said as much, that Christians are ignorant or irrational. But I'm with you, Bill. I mean, the most rational thing you'll ever do is to acknowledge your accountability to God, confess your sin, accept the payment that he has, you know, graciously made provision for, Jesus. And, uh, I mean, look, the the idea that something came from nothing, that, you know, everything turned into everything else, chaos is the mother of order, inanimate matter produced consciousness, and that fulfilled prophecy, the infallibility of Scripture, the empty tomb... Uh, all those things are just illusions. I mean, there are so many burdens of proof on the shoulders of atheism. And there there is a burden of proof on the shoulder of Christianity, but it's a very manageable burden of proof, whereas, um, as many people have said, like the late Norm Geisler, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist.
0: mm So
1: well said. Dr. Alex
0: McFarland is my guest. You can learn more about Alex and his books and everything he does at alexmcfarland.com. That's M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D. We'll take a short break and be right back.
2: As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. Time together as people of faith is so important, and together we can make a positive impact. So Faith Radio is ready to hit the road. Would your community be a good fit for a Faith Radio live event full of encouragement and togetherness that we can spur each other on toward love and good deeds? Nominate your community for a live Faith Radio event at myfaithradio.com, and I hope to get to see you soon.
0: So glad to be with my friend, Dr. Alex McFarland. He's written over 20 books. His recent one is 100 Bible Questions and Answers for Families, Inspiring Truths, Helpful Explanations, and Power for Living. So, Alex, let me just look at something from your book here, because I find this fascinating. How could King David be a man after God's own heart, even though, you know, we... He committed adultery and had Uriah killed, and so how could he be a man after God's own heart?
1: Well, wow, that is a great question, and uh, we we tackle that in the book that just came out, "A Hundred Bible Questions and Answers for Families." You know, isn't it something how redemptive God is that David gets listed in the lineage of Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, He did a lot of things. By the way, I I think that's part of the reason that we can trust the Bible, because if, for instance, a skeptic I debated one time said that the Old Testament was basically, you know, nationalistic propaganda by Jews. But, you know, the greatest king of Israel, King David, certainly if it were a hagiography and if it were just a sanitized, you know, Puff piece to lift up David, they would have left out the whole Bathsheba incident and and all that. Um, I, I think David was a man after God's own heart because he had absolute faith in God. I mean, when he in First Samuel seventeen, when he went out to kill Goliath, um, very rational. He said, "The Lord." who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. And Eliab, his brother, said, David, you've just come down here to watch the battle, and who's watching the sheep back home? And David, picking up five smooth stones, David lays out five powerful words, Is there not a cause? Uh, Yeah. And, Bill, i got to say, in our day and age, you know, you know, we're proclaiming and attempting to defend the faith. Is there not a cause? Yes, there. there's a cause. So David, he trusted God with his life. He obeyed God even when it was exceedingly dangerous. He wrote at least half of the 150 psalms. Um, one of the great psalms, David wrote Psalm 119, That contains verse 93, I will never forget your words, for through them I found life. He said, I delight in your commands. Um, So, you know, he, he, he danced for joy. He didn't get to build the temple. He did bring the lumber to the job site. King Solomon did that. But in spite of his sin, he was forgiven. And yeah, he could legitimately be called... You know, as as he was called in um, Acts 13, a man after God's own heart. Mm,
0: so good. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. Alex, how can I know if I am truly saved?
1: Uh, there's someone that needs to hear this today. Well, First John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. 5, These things are written to you who believe. That you may know you have eternal life. That's uh, K N O W, certain knowledge. Um, now, if if somebody is listening, Bill, and they're they're not for sure, and they say, you know, I I, I don't know. Well, you can make sure. Here's a verse I love, John six forty. So let me ask you this. Then I want to recite this verse. Okay. Do, you, do you understand that God loves you? And Christ died for you, and Jesus is God's Son. He rose from the dead. And so you understand that when he went to that cross and the appropriate measure of God's wrath that you and I deserved, Jesus suffered and died and rose again. All right, John six forty. here's what Jesus said. Whoever sees the Son, S-O-N, and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I will raise you up at the last day. So to see the Son means to comprehend, to understand Jesus is who he claimed to be. He died because he loves you. Bill, every one of your listeners, Jesus died because he loves them. And if if they would put their faith in Jesus, then the word faith means trust, and just call out and um, believe in him. Mm-hmm. You know, i got to say this, like, Mm, six weeks ago, I went to Mississippi. We have a donor there, and our ministry, we, we have to raise like $700,000 a year. Um, just found out for our seven youth camps next summer, um, I'm going to have to raise $36,000 more than we raised this year, but that's oh, okay, Big because we had 1,200 kids come to the camp, and 300 got saved, and so God provides, but We have to go and ask people for help, right? So I went down to Mississippi. There's a man. He has some steel mills, and he's very wealthy, and he's very godly. But I was really intimidated, and I sat down, and um, I'm kind of beating around the bush, and he said, Alex, what, what would you like me to do for you? And I'm hemming and hawing, and I'm kind of intimidated by this wealthy guy, and he said, Ask me what you want, and I'm still saying, "Well, we're, we do this, this." And he put his hand on my hand, my arm, and he said, "Alex, ask me what you want." And I said, "Well, I need uh, this amount of money," and he said, "Okay, I'm happy to help wow. you." Bill, I, I think that's what God is waiting for us to ask. Ask the Lord what you need, mm. and to everybody listening, here's the thing: God. God is for you. God is not mad at you. If you want to make sure that you're saved, then call out to Jesus. He's promised to hear you. Say, Lord, please forgive my sins. Or say, Lord, please help me get my life back together. Or, Lord, help me find a job. Or, Lord, help help my marriage get, get straight. Or help me with my kids. I honestly think that, uh, like James 4, 2, it says that we very often we have not because we ask not. Don't you think the Lord is just there? And he says, look, I love you. I'm for you. Yeah. Tell me what you need.
0: Mm-hmm. I think of Bartimaeus approaching Jesus, Jesus clearly could see he was a blind man wearing the blind beggar's cloak, and yet Jesus still says, what would you like me to do? And Bartimaeus said, I want to see. Pretty clear. Amen. Alex, thanks That's for you. spending time with me today. I hope you have a great rest of the day, and I always appreciate having you on the show. God is good, and And Bill, I cherish our friendship. Thank Uh, you, my friend. Likewise, thanks. Dr. Alex McFarlane has been my guest. You can learn about him and his books and everything else he does at alexmcfarlane.com. We're going to take a little break, and then Dr. Greg Borgon is going to talk about why God disciplines the ones he loves. Our two is going to be at least two Jews and a Gentile. Can't wait. Be right back. Oh, I think it was a couple weeks ago on Guy Talk, which we do on Thursdays, we got into a discussion about the wrath of God, which seems to be kind of a hot topic nowadays. There's a lot of uh, teaching pastors throughout the country that would rather not talk about the God of wrath or they would put it in a light that made God look like he's some angry toddler throwing a temper tantrum and trying to pour out his wrath out of anger. And uh, we were in discussion on that, and we have uh, Dr. Greg Borgon here in studio to to put some more meat on this bone to try to walk Mm. through this in a biblical, solid way. Greg, welcome back to the show. Good
2: to be here, Bill. Let's talk about reconciling the wrath of God. Well, you know... I was in on that conversation, and it intrigued me, and um, as we talked about before we were on the show, how prevalent that theme is now, using it as a means of of detracting somebody or keeping somebody from even approaching the Bible or approaching the Lord, that how could he be that? He's the God of love. Well, in, in some sense, and in, in a very real sense, we're living in um, a hypersensitive contemporary society, so easily offended at the slightest indication of injustice, which makes many uneasy when reading about violence in Scripture, for instance, especially in the Old Testament. Such sensitivity can lead to a fundamental misunderstanding regarding the nature of God uh, when the Old Testament is compared to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. We have some pastors out there that, that won't even preach from the Old Testament. So the following refrain, refrain is, is often heard. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath... Well, the God of the New Testament is a God of love. So they're suggesting that the Old Testament is wrathful, vengeful, full of violence, and the New Testament is not. But that just betrays the fact that people really don't read Scripture well. Yeah. Is there a wrong button we can hit right now? (laughs) Yeah. Let's hit it. (laughs) Let's hit hit that button. Maybe it'll make a nice buzzing noise. In, In the book... The God Delusion from Atheist uh, Richard Dawkins. He refers to God of the Old Testament as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens, another atheist who's since died, he died in 2011, says the Old Testament contains a warrant for indiscriminate massacre. Wow. Now he sees the Lord. <laughs> Unbelievable. And other critics of Christianity and some inside Christianity and Christian circles have leveled similar charges, accusing Yahweh of crimes against humanity. So that's the level that rhetoric has, has risen to about this issue. So the question is, are, are these criticisms true? Uh, I believe uh, a closer look is needed. So throughout the Old Testament, first of all, we have to remind ourselves, if we read it carefully, God is depicted as a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you find that in Exodus and, in, of course, in Psalms. Forgiving inequity and transgression in Numbers 14. Who will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Ready to forgive, gracious and merciful in Nehemiah chapter 9. Good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who will call upon him, Psalm 86. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds, Psalm 108. And he relents over disaster. So... It isn't just that you see the wrath, and that's what our minds go to immediately, the violent depictions. But if we read the scriptures carefully, we see even in the Old Testament, God is gracious, he's merciful, uh, he's very, very patient, as we'll see in a few minutes. In the New Testament, his loving and kindness reaches new heights. In uh, John 3.16, which we're well familiar, familiar with, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Yet his wrath is still being revealed. Look at Romans 1.18. From heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In fact, the book of Revelation is replete with examples of his righteous wrath against sin and the purveyors of sin. God's love in sacrificing his son for the sins of mankind is all the more significant when set against the backdrop of his judgments. God's wrath and judgment are poured out against sin. The Lord disciplines those who he loves. It says in Hebrews twelve six, and chastens everyone he receives into his kingdom through the finished work of Christ mm-hmm. on the cross.
0: Greg, that's also in uh, Revelations three two. I, I rebuke and punish all whom I love. Yes. Be in earnest then and turn from your sin.
2: Yes. What is he looking for? Is he a vengeful God that's just given vent to his anger? Is he impetuous, as you talked about a little bit earlier, or is he simply um, have a different view of sin that we currently have today? Yeah. And how dangerous it. One biblical scholar puts it this way, Bill: as we read and study the Bible, it becomes clear that God is the same in the Old and New Testaments. Amen. Even though the Bible is 66 individual books written on two or possibly three continents in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors, it remains one unified book from beginning to end without contradiction. In it, we see how a loving, merciful, and just God deals with sinful men in all kinds of situations. Truly, the Bible is God's love letter to mankind, God's love for his creation— especially for mankind, is evident all through Scripture, according to this scholar. Throughout the Bible, he goes on to say, we see God lovingly and mercifully calling people into a special relationship with him, not because they deserve it, but because he is gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Yet we also see a holy and righteous God who is the judge of all those who disobey his word and refuse to worship him, turning instead to worship gods of their own creation, according to Romans chapter 1. Both the Old and New Testament, he finishes by saying, were given to make us wise unto salvation, according to 2 Timothy 3.15. When we study the Testaments closely, it's evident that God does not change like shifting shadows, according to James one seventeen. So, How does one reconcile the violence perpetrated by God as presented so graphically in the Old Testament? How does a modern-day Christian, for instance, come to terms with manifestation of anger against man, woman, and child? These are legitimate questions. The answer rests on an accurate understanding of sin and of attributes and nature of God. Mm -hmm. For instance... Um, Sin is not a mistake or when you misspeak or a miscalculation or um, anything like that. Sin is much more insidious, much more dangerous, much more invasive. Uh, It's like a terrible virus that will ultimately destroy you. So when we talk about sin, we need to understand how grave it is to understand Why God would be so wrathful uh, against it. Why he's so adamant to stamp it out, even though he's patient, giving us every opportunity to receive Christ. So God's wrath is holy and always justified given the depths of depravity, arrogant disobedience, and open rebellion encountered during the patriarchal period, for instance, of Israel's history. In Romans 12, 9, and certainly prevalent today... Greg, have we gotten just a little bit too pedestrian with God? Like, God's my pal and my buddy
0: and the big guy in the sky. You, know, you hear those kinds of expressions. You People use them from time to time. And you think you don't understand a holy God who lives in unapproachable light. Well,
2: it was uh, J.B. Phillips who said that your God is too small. And oftentimes we want to make him a friend. And he is indeed that. But he's much more than that. Way more. Way more than yeah. that. We, un- we have to understand he is our creator. So... God is holy and cannot embrace sin. Mm -hmm. Only the blood of an innocent lamb can cover sin in in all of its displays. He alone can judge the world of sin. When sin, and you've heard me say this on your show before, Bill, when sin goes unabated, its shrill voice grows louder. When you treat God, like you just mentioned, as a friend, then it's easy to go ahead and disappoint your friend, thinking the friend is still going to be your friend. Mm -hmm. And so you're cavalier. About some of the things you do and say, because you're banking on the fact that this person is going to remain your friend. But when sin goes unabated, its shrill voice grows louder. Left unchecked, now this is important, it can only ruin a human being, it it, it cannot only ruin a human being, but destroy a culture, devastate a nation, and corrupt all creation. Wow. That's how serious sin is. We're watching that in real time. Yes, we are. Yep. God's attributes and nature, when it comes to that, um, justifies his actions. He is holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's eternal, he's sovereign, he's unchanging, he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. He's not you and me. No. (laughs) His holiness alone separates him from all moral defilement and abuse, and in fact is hostile to the immoral acts of mankind. So because of his nature especially his holiness and knowing all past, present, and future, his judgment against nations and groups of people can be better understood, I think. So the case that's often brought up, and there are many in the Old Testament, of nations that he completely um, uh, destroyed. Because that can be troubling for people when they hear
0: these stories, and they think, well, how would God allow that? Like the destruction of the Canaanites, maybe you'll talk about that.
2: Yeah, let's do that. The destruction of the Canaanites is often cited, uh, for instance, Bill, as evidence of God's cruelty, resulting in justification for abandoning uh, the faith by some. Along with the Canaanites, other nations also receive God's wrathful judgment. So, are the critics right? How could a truly holy and loving God command and give instructions for a wholesale slaughter of an entire people? Well, let's look at what Scripture says. Deuteronomy chapter twenty verses sixteen through eighteen. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Pezarites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Okay. So there's the reason for it. Mm-hmm. When juxtapose against the seriousness of that, those abominations, which we have to, in, in the case of the Canaanites, he was merciful and patient for over 400 years before he leveled judgment on them. Mm-hmm. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 through 30, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For all of these, the nations I am driving up before you have become unclean, and the land become unclean. So that I punished its inequity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations either... The native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. The passage goes on to say, For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So in essence, it isn't that he came out of the dark and decided to obliterate these nations. He had warned them again, again, and again. Mm -hmm. He did it through prophets. He did it through some people who were even unbelievers. And warned them repeatedly. Yeah. Because he always were seeking their repentance. Yeah. This is not capricious destruction. No, yeah. absolutely not. So let's look at the nation of Can- Canaan more closely. God was indeed justified in his judgment bill and wrath for the following reasons. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, let me just say, this is,
0: I want to make sure we give plenty of time for this uh, looking at, at the nation of, of Canaan more carefully. And, and to do that, I feel like now is a good time just to take a quick break. Sure. And we'll come back and we'll pick up there. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Greg Borgon. We're, we're discussing reconciling the wrath of God. You know, I think you've heard a lot going on in 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 the world today about this angry God and, and God's wrath. And we need to understand it biblically. And that's what Greg's helping us do. We'll take a short break and be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word APP to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Right, we're back with Dr. Greg Borgon, and today we're discussing reconciling the wrath of God. That's an interesting topic, and the best way to do this is biblically. We look at the nation of Canaan, for example, and the wrath that w- was poured out, the destruction of the Canaanites. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. Greg, maybe we can uh, take a little bit deeper look at the sure. nation of Canaan more more carefully.
2: Well, the first thing to remember, uh, those of you listening in the audience, is to bear in mind that God endured their abominable sins for over 400 years. Now, even today, we as Christians are wondering, where's God? Why isn't he stepping in with all of these uh, terrible abominations that are happening in our own presence, not only here in the United States, but around the world? But he waited for 400 years before acting against them. How far are we away from him acting? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. But anyway, here's what what they were like. The Canaanite culture was an inherently morally wicked, bankrupt, and culpable. First of all, they were a brutal and aggressive people. They were in constant rebellion. They practiced now here's what's important to understand. child sacrifice, mm. kind of like what we're doing today. Yeah. incest, adultery. Temple prostitution and various other horrible acts. They willfully rejected God repeatedly and purposely thwarted his will repeatedly. They promoted their depravity among the nations, and Israel was susceptible um, through uh, acculturation. They were an, an uh, idolatrous nation, according to Deuteronomy chapter seven and twelve. And the Canaanite children would have repeated the sins of their fathers and sympathetic to the religion of their parents. So that's the nation that he was dealing with. But for 400 years, he endured their atrocities. And it just, you know, when I was putting this together, I kept thinking, how much longer, Lord, are you going to endure us? How much longer before you actually act? We know it's coming because the book of Revelation tells us it's coming. But certainly, Greg, he's enduring right now. Yeah, he's enduring because he, he wants have people to, to come to faith. He yeah. wants Amen. to repent. He wants yeah. them to repent. So what can we learn from all of this? First, we have to understand that God sees all things, not just in the present, but all in the past as well as into the future. So we need to remember that God has the capability to see down the road, to know the outcomes of present practices, to see the future and its implications. So... If he didn't step in at the time that he did, he obviously saw what were the possibilities in the future had he not. And so that's why he acted. So taking action when he did may have prevented something far worse Mm -hmm. from happening in the future. So God sees things from an eternal perspective. It's hard for us to understand that as his finite creatures because we think only in the present. We remember a little of the past and we just hope for the future But he sees them all at the same time, so he has an internal perspective. The second thing we learned, Bill, he knows far more than we do. What a shock. Hmm. He has declared, quote, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways," declares the Lord. "...for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." So he knows best and can be trusted by faith, and that's what we need to do. Since he knows, and we do not, we need to trust in him. The third thing we realize is that Paul tells us that God is both kind and severe. In Romans eleven twenty two through 23, we read, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So not only is God gracious and merciful, he's also a God of holiness and wrath. You can't separate the two. It's all one and the same. They were never meant to be separated. No, we separate them because it's convenient for us to justify the things that are going on around us. Hmm. And maybe we're even involved in. The fourth thing we learn, God hates sin. I, and i can't stress it enough how important it is to understand the depravity of sin and what it does to the human soul it just takes the life right out of it and knows the gravity of behaviors produced by sin when it is not dealt with severely and completely he has seen the devastation sin has wrought in the past what is producing in the present and the consequences in the future his patience and mercy has its limits but the judgments are coming. We read about them, we're warned about them, but still we sin. We're warned about the judgments during the tribulation period, the judgment seat of Christ for Christians, uh, the judgment of nations, the judgment of angels, and the great white throne of judgment for those who have rejected him. The fifth thing we learn is the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. He is immutable, absolute, and unchangeable. So he didn't just become a God of love just because there's a 400-year separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath. Now he had a change of mind, right? and now he's going to be a God of love. He had 400 years to think about it. Yeah, 400 yeah. years. But the Scripture is clear about his character. It's, he is immutable, absolute, and unchanged James 1.17 says, yep. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation— or shadow due to change. The the sixth and final thing that we learn, both in the Old and New Testament, were given to make us wise. Second Timothy three fourteen through seventeen. But as for you, continuing what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able. And he's referring, of course, to the Old Testament which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, not just the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that a man and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, in summary, God hates sin, and he's going to judge it. If not now, and he's being patient, He's ultimately going to judge you because his character demands it. Mm-hmm. He may not do so right away, but judgment is inevitable. God told Moses that he does not lead the guilty unpunished in Exodus 34-7. That's a scary thought. So if you think you're getting away from away with it, you're not. It's, it's going to catch up to you mm-hmm. like it did Christopher uh, Hitchens when he passed away in 2011. Now he's in the presence of God and dealing with the consequences of his unbelief. And in Dawkins is going to be there, too, one hmm. day. The second thing, in summary, God is merciful and forgiving. God also told Moses that he was the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, even when we're faithless, maintaining love to thousands, even when we're unlovable, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, according to Exodus 34, 6-7. So God is the same, but sin demands judgment, and only he has the right and is capable of offering legitimate judgment against the sin that's destroying the creatures he loves so much.
0: Greg, sometimes when people ask questions about the wrath that you re- see and read in the Old Testament, there some people are, are looking for a gotcha moment, and other people are sincerely seeking information and understanding. Yeah. So for those who are seeking understanding, this study has helped us equip ourselves to have that kind of conversation.
2: Hi. When you're trying to destroy the reputation of somebody else, you'll always bring up their failures, their faults, their character flaws because you want to diminish them in the eyes of others. Right. And so people will use and take these these snippets of the wrath of God And build it into a total caricature of God. And therefore, if that's the character of God as a wrathful, vengeful God, then he doesn't deserve to be worshipped. That's their argument. But it's a false premise. It's a red herring. Because if you read Scripture, you see that he's a God of love. The same God that's a God of love, by his very nature, demands that he also be judge as well as Savior.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So, again, this refrain that we've heard often, which you cited earlier in in the interview, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, while the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that's— That's that's wrong. That's completely— Hit the wrong button. That's going to hit the wrong button one more time before we end this uh, discussion, uh, Greg, because we don't want people thinking that there's any truth in that, because that's completely wrong. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. All right, this solid teaching. Thank you once again. I know once an idea gets in your head, because this came up in Guy Talk, we were talking about the wrath of God, and I could see your, your brain spinning
2: <laughs> as you were sitting yeah. next to
0: me, and I felt brain energy coming out of your head. And I know we didn't have enough time to cover uh, the whole I know. subject. I figured he'll be back. <laughs> he'll be back with more teaching. And here you are. So, so thank you very much. My privilege. Uh, always right. nice to have you on the show. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. You can learn more about him at Heart of a Warrior He's got a number of resources there. He's got a whole department at his website called Books. He's got a number of books. You can check it out. And we're going to take a little break, and uh, we'll be right back with lots more.